To what extent have abortion politics been the driver of campaign finance fights in the courts? How much of a force has anti-abortion lawyer Jim Bopp been in the campaign finance cases? Are new efforts to make it harder to pass abortion initiatives going to change voters' access to direct democracy? On Season 4, Episode 8 of the ELB Podcast, we speak with law professor and historian Mary Ziegler, author of the new book, Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Welcome to the ALB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast Mary Ziegler. Mary is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at UC Davis. She is an expert on the law history and politics of reproduction, healthcare, and conservatism in the United States from 1945 to the present. She is a 2023 Guggenheim Fellow and one of the world's leading historians of the U.S. abortion debate. Mary is the author of six books. Her latest fascinating book explores the connections between the fights over abortion and litigation over the constitutionality of campaign finance laws. It's called Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. It's a must-read for all students of campaign finance history and law in the United States. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thanks for having me. First thing I'll say is that I really enjoyed reading your book called Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. And we uh, shared an editor, Bill Frook, to, uh, you know, if he did the job for you like he did for me, uh, he really improved my prose and my thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bill is great and kind of a stickler, which is what you need. Absolutely. So you're a scholar, a very well-respected scholar, focusing on reproductive rights, health law, and legal history. How did you become interested in the connection between the struggle over abortion rights and the fights over campaign finance? It had become almost unavoidable. So when I was in the archives with anti-abortion material, I was seeing, you know, mention after mention of campaign finance and, you know, what was the original meaning or what did the framers think about money as speech or corporations as speakers? And I was honestly at first a little puzzled by it because I think like most people, I assumed that those with the greatest stake in campaign finance law were the people with the most money to spend, right? The people who would have potentially benefited the most were rules on campaign finance to change. And that just wasn't true of some of the anti-abortion groups I was studying. Some of them weren't particularly wealthy or even sometimes particularly large. So I was initially just trying to clear up for myself what was going on with that. And as often happens with legal history, that those kinds of questions lead you to other stories you want to tell. What is that connection? So to what extent do you see the politics of abortion as the driver of campaign finance fights in the courts? Or, or to, to put it maybe a slightly different way, do you think that the constitutional fights around campaign finance and the First Amendment would look different if the abortion issue were not involved? I think that's likely right. I mean, so obviously, like all historians, I don't want to overstate the importance of social conservatives to these fights. The social conservatives I study were always part of broader coalitions that included, you know, sort of small government conservatives and libertarians and the ACLU and unions and often kind of Republican senatorial and House committees or fundraising entities. So this was always a broader movement, but I think social conservatives played a pretty integral role in it 
And I think in shaping priorities, there was a longstanding fixation among social conservatives on dark money in particular, because there was a belief that the more unpopular their causes became, the more important it was for donors to be able to contribute and be guaranteed anonymity, right, to avoid the kind of backlash that we sometimes see, for example, after the Proposition 8 campaign in California. So I think the kind of breadth of support or I guess more opposition <laughs> on the right to campaign finance reform was part was, I think, uh, largely connected to the abortion struggle. The fact that a lot of right wing movements that wouldn't gain as obvious a benefit from the demise of campaign finance reform, the fact that many of those groups prioritized the fight against campaign finance reform was down to the fight against abortion, I think, partly. And even, you know, priorities in, in litigation, the way certain things were litigated, the, the rise of key figures in the movement against campaign finance reform, like Jim Bopp, who's probably the main character in the book. I think all of that was um, connected to abortion. And I think it's also important Conversely, to I think both for, for scholars of election law and campaign finance and also for scholars of abortion to see these things as connected, because I often see in the academy scholarship on reproductive rights or abortion kind of being siloed and treated as sort of a gender issue or a sexuality issue when historically groups that have been working on abortion have also been working on campaign finance, voting rights, and, and lots of sort of more structural issues. So I think it's important methodologically to understand the two as related, not distinct. I want to turn to Jim Bopp in a few minutes, but I, I want to talk a little bit about the coalitions that have been litigating against campaign finance. I did some historical and archival research related to Buckley versus Vallejo, and one of the things that struck me was the key role played by some on the left, most importantly the, by the ACLU, in being in this campaign finance fight. And the ACLU, to some extent, is still in the fight, although internally in the ACLU, it's a, an issue that's caused big division, as we both know. To what extent do you think the involvement of social conservatives and the focus on abortion from cases like Massachusetts Citizens for Life in, in 1986, all the way to Wisconsin Rights to Life in, in 2005, uh, 2006, has alienated those on the left who, you know, take more of a libertarian free speech approach to these issues, you know, from, from keeping that coalition going? I think over time it has. And, and I, I, it's interesting. I'd have to think more about the timing of this. But the, the alienation has clearly happened, but there was clearly a lag, right? So, I mean, you still... From archival material I've seen, I mean, the ACLU is still in the room and pretty happy to be in the room seemingly into the 2000s, right? So I think there was more of a political reckoning after Citizens United, given what a lot of Americans understood Citizens United to be, including things that the Supreme Court didn't even entirely say in Citizens United. And I think the realities that came into view after Citizens United were realities that some of the ACLU didn't like either in terms of how outside spending was changing and whom outside spending was benefiting. So I think that the emergence of these important, powerful, socially conservative figures in the fight against campaign finance reform was important, but I think it, it took a while. I don't think that that happened in the 80s or the 90s. And I'm not sure if that's a political salience thing or if it's just that the the 
the full consequences of what that involvement was going to mean were invisible until later. But but I do think you see somewhat of a shift among those kinds of left-leaning organizations uh, that had historically been more opposed to campaign finance reform. So let me turn to Jim Bopp. As you said, he plays a central role in your book. And, and full disclosure, I've, I've known Jim Bopp for many years. I've litigated against him where where uh, you know friendly known adversaries uh, on campaign finance <laughs> issues. First, I just want to ask you about your access to Jim Bopp's papers and your interviews with him. What do you think motivated him to share his thoughts and papers with you on the record so in such great detail? It's a good question. I mean, I had known Jim too, um, because obviously I, I've studied abortion issues my entire career. And I'd interviewed, I do oral histories. They're not really central to the kinds of conclusions I draw, but I like to do oral histories sometimes to kind of humanize my character. So you get a sense of what makes people tick. And I had done that with Jim, I think, for for several books. And Jim had read all the books, which is kind of unusual for some of the people I've interviewed don't necessarily want to read, you know, lots of legal history from someone like me in an academic press book. But Jim had read the books and liked them. And I did a lot of research on me. It's worth emphasizing, too. So among Jim's papers, there is actually a folder on me that continues (laughs) to grow. So Jim has read everything I've done. And, you know, he knew what my position was on things, but he also thought I was, I think, a fair um, kind of good faith chronicler of this history. And he wanted it out there. And he knew correctly um, that there isn't as much from conservative organizations, especially socially conservative organizations, especially anti-abortion organizations that exist in archives. There's a longstanding imbalance um, I think historically universities have been left-leaning and have collected organizations, um, you know, that pe- the people in the libraries admire and not so much the ones they don't, which has created a pretty big hole uh, in, in collections. I think you're seeing a lot of archives try to address that now, but I think Jim was someone who wanted that addressed, but in a way where he could kind of manage <laughs> the conditions. He didn't want the information available to historians whose work he didn't like, for example, right? Um, so I, I think that was why uh, it was sort of controlled access that he was looking to achieve. Got it. Let's talk about his role in, in substance. And I'm, I'm interested in the question of how much of a force he is in the campaign finance cases. I mean, one view is that, you know, he's been the brilliant strategist who, uh, you know, has conceived of these cases. Another view is that he's taken advantage of an increasingly friendly Supreme Court. Uh, And I ask this because you describe Bob's theory of the case in both Citizens United and McCutcheon, arguably the two most important campaign finance cases of this century, as different from the direction the court ultimately came. And in both cases, the clients stopped Bob from arguing the cases in the Supreme Court. You know, what does this say about Bob's strategy, his role in the bar, his perception as a campaign finance lawyer? His role was important, but not in the ways that he necessarily thought it was. The stories, as you mentioned, in both Citizens United and McCutcheon, really are stories about how other campaign finance lawyers thought generally that he was pushing too far and that he was assuming that the conservative Supreme Court would would essentially do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, instead of being sensitive to kind of strategic imperatives of the moment which was why ultimately in both of those cases, his strategies didn't work and he was relieved of his responsibilities to his clients. But I think he was still 
an integral figure, kind of a movement figure in other ways, right? So he was very important in persuading other social conservative groups to care about campaign finance, right? To make campaign finance a central issue, for example, in congressional ratings, in kind of fighting and really kind of suppressing the voices of social conservatives who did not want to oppose campaign finance or politicians who supported campaign finance reform, in convincing GOP leadership to talk and think in certain ways about campaign finance reform, even in instances where it wasn't strategically advantageous for them to do that. So I think he was, he's always been, I think, kind of a a bridge figure. Um, I see him and Leonard Leo as similar in this way, whose value to his movement in part comes from his his relationships as much as from his strategies. So I, I think it, in terms of his importance, the story told in the book is sort of, you know, that the, the way the question was framed was this sort of a false dichotomy, right? That he was really important, but also that he wasn't successful a lot of the time, right? He was much better at capitalizing on opportunities that the Supreme Court offered than on anticipating what the Supreme Court would do or offering good legal arguments. But that ability, that kind of strategic opportunism still mattered to the anti-abortion movement in ways we hadn't entirely appreciated before. And finally, on Bob, for years, I thought of him as someone with very conservative views, but someone with integrity, who would not misrepresent the record or the facts to a court. You know, he was somebody that I could be in a principled debate with. And that's not true of everyone, uh, you know, on either side. You know, not everyone is going to be so, um, you know, fair about the evidence. Uh, We just had, you Mm -hmm. know, different ideological views. But then, as you chronicle in your excellent book, Bob starts getting involved with the vote fraud nonsense, and even with the charlatans that true the vote. What can you tell us about what Bob actually believes about voter fraud in the United States? And in light of that, what light can you shed on his decision soon after taking four cases in the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election for True the Vote, supposedly to prove fraud in four states, and then almost immediately withdraw those cases from the court? And, and this, of course, led to, uh, as you discussed, some litigation against True the Vote by the person who donated the money to fund this litigation. So where does Bob fit into this constellation of people who I think of as less principled than he is, uh, much more interested in, I think, the grift of fraud claims more more than anything else. From what I can gather, he seems to believe it. But I also know from conversation with him that if he didn't, he would never tell me. So it's it's hard to tell. But he seems, in all the conversations I've had with him, he seems sincere. Um, the other thing I think... <laughs> One of uh, his defining traits, um, he is someone who loves the game. He's someone, I think, who was interested in conservative politics before he was interested in abortion and who loves strategy for strategy's sake. And so I think that that helps to explain some of this, because I think after Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, he was one of the people in the anti-abortion movement at saying essentially playing the long game for the anti-abortion movement is not going to be about abortion doctrine. It's going to be about issues like campaign finance. And voting was a logical, you know, in some ways, from a strategic standpoint, next step, right? If, if you're trying to dictate who can make the decisions, whether that's within the Republican Party or the Supreme Court, you're kind of changing the ground rules of the democracy. And I think that was something he saw as important. I think he has also been 
kind of reflexively supportive of anybody he views as the conservative grassroots. There came a point in after the Tea Party movement when he switched from being someone who generally tended to favor the most electable Republican candidates and the most effective strategies in terms of winning mainstream support to someone who became quite angry about what he saw the political establishment and legal establishment is doing and someone who was quite supportive of anything he saw as grassroots populist and insurgent. And that, that turn happens, you know, around 2012. And I think at that time, his interest in groups like True the Vote, which he sees in them something of himself, right? Sort of insurgent, bottom-up groups that are trying to convince the GOP to take principled positions that they don't want to take. I think that sometimes blinded him to some of the substance that those groups were championing. And his interest in winning really had a lot to do with it, too. So when I when he talked about 2020 and his effort temporarily to try to overturn the election, to hear him tell the story, the problem was not that there was no evidence of fraud or that it was a bad idea to overturn the election. Rather, the problem was that the strategy and tactics were being shaped by lawyers like Rudy Giuliani, whom he didn't respect, and he had no interest in what he ultimately believed would be a losing effort. So to hear when he tells the story now, the problem again was that he was going to be out-strategized because he was going to have to defer to Giuliani and he was going to have to lose. And that was unthinkable to him. So he still says he loses sleep over the thought that he he could have won, essentially, if, if he had been the one driving the ship, he could have found the evidence of fraud, which he acknowledges he doesn't have now, but he believes he could have acquired. So it's complicated, right? I, I think he's. I think he he believes that there's fraud, but his reasons for believing uh, have more to do with his his sort of obsession with winning and his changing perspective on what the right needs to be and do in the United States. Wow, that's fascinating. I want to now pull back and come back to the broader question of abortion and money in politics. Uh, in Dobbs, Justice Kavanaugh famously or infamously suggested the decision would take courts out of the fight over abortion. And given what your schedule looks like today, I think we can say that that prediction has turned out to be incorrect. <laughs> we have multiple battles in multiple states. So I have a few questions on this. First, there's been this attempt to make it harder to uh, pass ballot measures in some Republican states. Uh, for example, mm -hmm. we have this fight in Ohio now. Is this primarily a fight about abortion? Uh, is abortion driving changes in election law now outside of just thinking about campaign finance and thinking about you know things like direct democracy? Yeah, I think I think it always has been a major role, and I think it's important. Again, I mean, I don't want to say it's not the only thing, right? So the the ballot initiative fight in Ohio is picking up on other social issues too. If you've if you've been fortunate or unfortunate enough to watch ads from the Ohio campaign, there's a lot about gender affirming care and transgender rights, which has neither of which have anything to do with this ballot initiative. But uh, Republicans are making it the issue because they see that as being connected to direct democracy too. But I think there's been there had been, I think, especially among historians and probably among lawyers as well, a sense that you know, there was a lot of talk and not much substance when it came to the law and politics of abortion, essentially that a lot of politicians talked a big game about abortion, but that when it came to kind of the structural 
features of our democracy, abortion had very little to do with it, and that indeed Republican presidents did very little substantively when in office on abortion. And I think that that account was was flawed from the outset, and it's pretty obviously flawed now. And we're seeing it more and more, I think, it, particularly because anti-abortion groups have always prioritized what they see as the recognition of, of the personhood and rights of the unborn child or the fetus. And they, they think that is a principle that is rooted in, in the Constitution and the original public meaning of the Constitution, but also in natural law and scripture. And that principle, they think, is more important than majoritarian politics. So it's it's not surprising that if majoritarian politics don't land where the movement would prefer, that you see efforts to change the ability of voters to decide, right? Which we're seeing in places like Ohio, potentially in places like Idaho, and people like Bob who were involved in, you know, writing voter ID laws and other things well before through the vote um, were kind of at the vanguard of that. And what could you say more broadly about the abortion issue and money in politics today? Is it driving more money on the left, on the right? Is there something that we can say about this? I mean, what, what do we know? There's been a pattern really from the beginning. I mean, so uh, ab abortion rights organizations have always had and raised and often spent much more than anti-abortion organizations. So, you know, Planned Parenthood, for example, has been a kind of campaign finance behemoth for years. And especially when abortion rights are, are under fire, or I guess in this case, depending on your perspective, when they've been destroyed. So at times of peril for reproductive rights, we often see the gap between the kind of campaign spending prowess of organizations on the right and left grow even more. That said, I think you see patterns that have driven anti-abortion groups to care more about specific aspects of campaign spending, whether that's outside spending, um, the kind of McCutcheon mega donor problem, um, because there's been a reliance for anti-abortion groups on single, um, a handful of, of donors, whether that's Tom Monahan of Domino's Pizza or Ray Ruddy, who was CEO of a government contracting company, who's really the financial force behind the group Students for Life. I think that continues to be true now. And the balance is shifting in part again because of Leonard Leo. Um, there are other figures like Bop and Leo who have managed to be not just single issue anti-abortion activists, but people who have managed to span more than one issue. And there, there are people, I think, like Bop and Leo who do that as being part of the conservative legal movement and the anti-abortion movement. And then there are others like uh, the people who work at Alliance Defending Freedom and other conservative Christian groups that are extremely well-funded. So I think in recent years, the gap on the one hand has grown in some ways because of popular support for abortion rights and the historic advantage groups like Planned Parenthood have enjoyed but also shifted in the other direction at times because of these kind of bridge figures like Leo and bridge organizations like ADF that have raised and spent much more historically than single issue anti-abortion groups have. So I want to conclude by asking you to look into the future about the relationship of money in politics and the politics of abortion. What do you expect things are going to look like in five to 10 years in this country? How are things going to be different then compared to what they look like today? 
I mean, I, I think as a historian, I'm always reluctant to, to say, right, because I, I don't think we know. But I think increasingly the way the abortion fight has gone has been as a kind of proxy for the health of our democracy when it comes to money in politics or even access to the ballot. And I think we're likely to see that continue again, because I think Republicans in many states are committing themselves to positions that are deeply unpopular. And this is true, I think, as well in national politics, which will, I think, make this dynamic even more pronounced. And so I think what you're likely to see is more of the same in terms of anti-abortion groups investing more in lifting limits on campaign spending and placing limits on the vote. We see this not just with Bob and his organizations, but uh, the Thomas More Society, which has the Amistad Project, which did a lot of work to overturn the 2020 election and has been pushing lots of other things to limit um, mail-in balloting and early voting. The Susan B. Anthony List and the Family Research Council have their own voter fraud claims and initiatives. So I think we're likely to see more pushes in that direction from social conservatives and that being more of a priority for social conservatives. And I imagine too that you'll see more interaction and intersection between groups that are working on reproductive rights and groups that are working on issues like campaign finance and access to the ballot, because it's going to become, I think, increasingly obvious that you can't separate the two. I guess we'll be proving Justice Kavanaugh wrong day after day <laughs> over the next uh, <laughs> Yeah, year. indefinitely. The book is Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Uh, Mary Ziegler, it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun for me, too. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is a composition jazz by the band BFN, used under Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time. <laughs>